2: I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we are exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country as divided as our country has become. So look, we are very close now to the midterm elections. I know you're thinking about it, I'm thinking about it. Some stars will fall, there will be some stars that rise. Some careers are going to take off. Some careers are going to stall out. The table will be set, not just for the next two years, but for the next 10 years in some of these elections. Speaking of stars <laughs> rising, sometimes you hear somebody, you meet somebody, you observe somebody, and you just think to yourself, that's going to be a star. That person is going someplace. That person is going to sell a gazillion records. That person's going to revolutionize basketball. That person is going to be president of the United States. Sometimes you just come across somebody who's like that. So, as we're getting ready for the midterm elections, somebody who's pretty much assured to win this election, but who knows what other elections they may win, is Congressman Richie Torres. He is a rising star in the Democratic Party. He's only 34 years old, but at the age of 25, he was already New York City's youngest elected city official. He was the first openly LGBTQ congressman from the Bronx. Uh, he actually grew up in the Bronx. He's got a deep understanding of everything that's going on in his district.
3: We should focus on the bread and butter issues that matter to everyday people. Like We have to recognize that most Americans, most rank-and-file Democrats are practical and not ideological. Most of them have no Twitter accounts and have bread and butter concerns about the cost of housing and health care and higher education. And we need to be a party that speaks
2: powerfully and directly to the concerns of everyday people on the ground. And at a very young age, he has already helped to pass over 40 pieces of legislation. I'm going to tell you, that is hard to do. There are people who've been in Congress for a long time, people who've been in elected office for a long time. They may have two, three or four, 40 is a lot. He's done affordable housing stuff in New York. He's addressed the opioid crisis in New York. He's done stuff, not petty stuff, big stuff, important stuff. And I want you to listen to this young person. There was a time when you had never heard the name Barack Obama. Many have not yet heard the name Richie Torres. But after listening to this conversation, I think you'll understand why I am putting those two names in the same sentence. So stay tuned to listen to my conversation with Representative Richie Torres After this break,
3: if I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using rocket money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting.
0: Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500
2: Welcome to the Uncommon Ground podcast. The last time I talked to you. You were not a congressperson yet, and now you feel like a veteran. Time is so weird (laughs) nowadays. Uh, The past couple of years when you've been in office have been extraordinary for the country and for you. The first thing I want to say is that you are a twin, as am I. I have a twin sister. You have a twin brother. I think people don't understand the superpower that comes with having a womb mate. Not just a roommate, but a womb mate. Before we talk about all your upbringing and stuff, What's the impact do you think on your life and understanding of the world of being a twin?
3: You have no choice but to negotiate. <laughs> the only context in which narcissism is acceptable and maybe even adorable is from a baby. Right, right. <laughs> but when you're a twin, you're competing for attention and you have to negotiate arrangements that work for you and your twin brother, so or twin sister. Although I'm convinced that I'm the favorite twins. So in 1986, my mother was watching the movie La Bamba Mm -hmm. and she felt inspired to name me after Richie Valance, um, Richie with a T, -T Mm R-I-T-C-H-I-E. And she named my brother after the Ruben sandwich, (laughs) from which I inferred that I'm
2: the favorite son. I think that's a very, fair inference. You know, you grew up in, in housing projects. There's a lot going on, a lot of challenges. And I think it's really affected in a positive way your view about the need to stand up for opportunities, stand up against inequality. Yeah. But for people who don't know that story and that background, talk a little bit about how you and your siblings, including your, your twin brother, grew up.
3: So we grew up in public housing in the East Bronx, the Roxanneck Houses. I was raised by a single mother who had to raise three of us on minimum wage, which in the 1990s was $4.25 an hour. So I often tell people, imagine being a single mother in the most expensive city in America, raising three children on four dollars and 25 cents an hour and we grew up in public housing public housing has been so chronically underfunded that it's common to live in conditions of mold and mildew leaks and lead without air conditioning in the summer or reliable heat and hot water in the winter and there's a sense in which my life was something of a metaphor because i grew up in a public housing development right across the street from trump golf course And as the golf course was undergoing construction, I kid you not, it actually unleashed a skunk infestation. So I've been smelling the stench of Donald Trump well before he entered
2: politics. (laughs) I wonder how you think about your peers looking back. I mean, you're in your early thirties now. So you were in elementary school, junior high school, high school with folks who didn't wind up in Congress. I'm sure some wound up uh, getting out or making it and finding a way, probably some didn't. As you look back at your peer group growing up, what do you see?
3: I look back with humility.
2: I'm no smarter and
3: better than the people with whom I grew up. And obviously I don't want to diminish the sacrifices and efforts that I've made to reach Congress, but you cannot ignore the element of chance in life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I was in third grade, I was the victim of a pretty brutal gang assault. And the leader of that assault uh, shifted his attention to a, a friend of mine, and he spent more than a decade like bullying and tormenting my friend. And this friend of mine decided to go to a private school in the hopes of escaping the bullying and the torment, and he became the captain of his football team, and he was poised to put himself through college. And then one day, in broad daylight, he was gunned down by the same person who had assaulted me when I was in third grade and his mother came out to find her own son drenched in blood. So you can do everything right in life and have your life tragically cut short (laughs) by moments like those. And uh, I'm just enormously grateful that I not only have happiness and health, but I have the rare blessing of public service and the greatest legislation in the world. Because I realized that people who come from backgrounds like mine do not normally have the opportunity, the privilege to serve in the United States Congress. Yeah,
2: well, it, it's a it's a rare privilege and it's a small club, and most people who are in that club don't have your background, not just in terms of your age. You're one of the younger people in that body. I think the average age of people in the upper chamber is like twice your age, so. I'm an infant yeah, in Congress. Yeah,
3: exactly. I call it the gerontocracy. so. Our three leaders are at or above the age of 80, and all but a few of the committee chairs are at or above the age of 70. Congress could benefit from a new generation of leadership. Mm -hmm. Do you think the White House could? I think every government at every level could benefit. But I'm 34, so in 46 years, I'll be eligible to run for president. (laughs) (laughs) Because 80 seems to be the new threshold for the presidency, so...
2: I mean, you must think about that job. I mean, everybody that I hear talking about you, the first thing they say is the next Obama. Literally, it's the first thing everybody says. How does that land with you when you hear that? Oh, I'm no Barack Obama.
3: I I mean, Barack Obama was the most gifted public servant and orator of his generation. But he's an inspiration because when you become the first African-American president in the United States, you break the ultimate glass ceiling. And Mm-hmm. everyone can now imagine themselves in positions of power in the country because of what he accomplished. Mm-hmm. But that kind of observation is is flattering to me, but I think it's insulting to the president because I'm no Barack Obama.
2: Well, I don't know him as well as, uh, as some, but I know him better than others. And he wasn't in Congress at 32 <laughs> or 30. You know, he
3: actually said that to me.
2: Yeah. President
3: Obama came before the House Democratic Caucus and the Speaker gave me the honor of asking him the first question. Mm -hmm. After I finished asking my question, he said, you know, you're young enough to be my son. And Mm -hmm. I certainly wasn't in Congress when I was 33, 34. So yeah, but you know, he's an inspiration to all of us. Mm. He's just the gold
2: standard of public service. Uh, What was your question? what did you ask him? Do you remember?
3: Uh, Asked him lessons learned from the experience with the ACA and how it could inform our approach to back better back when build back better was the focal point of our efforts to pass bold climate legislation mm-hmm. do you remember the answer i th- think that if i remember correctly just be persistent ignore the background noise keep your focus mm-hmm. on the end game yeah that was my takeaway from his answer
2: yeah yeah that would be consistent with his approach for sure you know because of your background you're such an unusual person right now in american life And I think your agenda is a little bit different. We're really concerned about poverty, opportunity, inequality. I think those are some of the toughest issues. I mean, it'd be a lot easier to work on pretty much anything else (laughs) at a time when inequality is getting bigger around the world and not just here. The economy is in tough shape. So I just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking with you about if it were up to you, if you were in the leadership and if you were able to shape the Democratic Party's agenda or the national agenda, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What do you want to see us doing more of? to help people move up and out of poverty.
3: We should focus on the bread and butter issues that matter to everyday people. Like We have to recognize that most Americans, most rank and file Democrats, are practical and not ideological. Most of them have no Twitter accounts (laughs) and have bread and butter concerns about the cost of housing and healthcare and higher education. And we need to be a party that speaks powerfully and directly to the concerns of everyday people on the ground rather than to college-educated activists. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that would be my, the broad observation that I would make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've obviously been a champion of the child tax credit because it's been a powerful tool for radically reducing poverty in America. Because if you're born into poverty through no fault of your own, it will affect the trajectory of your life. Mm-hmm. It will lead to less educational attainment, less employment, uh, less opportunity uh, at every point in your life. You mean
2: uh, the poverty will do that? Yes, Mm -hmm. if you're born into poverty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're part of the Democratic Party, so am I. I think the Democratic Party is known for championing two opposing ideas that both are in disrepute. (laughs) On the one hand, you have the younger crowd, which seems to be championing socialism and various forms of socialism. And quite loudly, quite proudly, uh, one of your colleagues from New York in your delegation is AOC. And I think she's got tremendous support and tremendous following. But the word socialist doesn't pull very well with our folks coming here from Latin America and older generations. So there's that set of ideas. And the other side of the party, you have people who are the architects of neoliberal economics, passing trade deals that maybe sent jobs overseas or we wound up hollowing out parts of the middle and working class in America. So you have a party that kind of has two ideas that are kind of at war with each other, but neither one of the ideas seem to be that great from my point of view. And I wonder if you, as kind of a, a new voice and as a, with, with a new perspective, uh, might um, uh, have something different to say than either one of the polls in the party.
3: Well, I think there's an opportunity to forge a middle ground that combines the best of both. combines the idealism of the first with the pragmatism of the second. What I would call a kind of pragmatic progressivism because we have to recognize that the system is failing many people and COVID-19 in particular uh, told a larger story about the deepest inequalities in our society and we should build a 21st century social contract aimed at addressing those inequalities so uh, there is an th- alternative to both of those approaches that you've laid out. Yes, the system is broken, but the solution lies not in dismantling it or burning it down, but in finding solutions that have been shown to work, that have been shown to lift people out of poverty and restore opportunity and mobility in America. Um, the one thing I worry about is the decline in upward mobility in America. I remember even before COVID, Raj Chetty reporting that There's been a collapse of social mobility in America and you had twice the likelihood of achieving the American dream in Canada (laughs) than you did in America. Right. That's not so good. And so we should create a social safety net that enables people like me from places like the Bronx to have a fighting chance at a decent life. Because if we can make progressive governance work in a place like the South Bronx, then we can make it work anywhere.
2: Well, you know, you you, you mentioned you know, the bread and bread and butter issues versus, you know, the college educated activist uh, crowd, and I think you know, both of us share some frustration. Being, you know, one of the college educated activist crowd myself, I'm, I'm a proud college dropout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Congratulations. Uh, I think you know, we we share some frustration with just how weird Democrats sometimes sound because I think just overemphasis on. Making sure not to give offense to anybody who took some advanced equality studies on campus. So we just talk weird. We say weird stuff like BIPOC and Latinx, and I mean, just all kinds of stuff that I just don't think the normal people, you go know, to a black barbershop or church, I've never heard anybody stand up and say, Well, as a BIPOC person, I feel I've never heard any of this stuff. And it just seems like every six months, some committee comes up with some new <laughs> Uh, the the slang we all have to use or or something, I think it separates us. I think it makes us seem like we're weird and we're from some other place where the main concern is like, what are you supposed to call someone as opposed to, you know, how are you going to help someone? And I just wonder how all that settles with you since frankly, it's a lot more people your age than mine that seem to be fascinated by all this kind of um, language policing that goes on. It seems to me the college educated,
3: the largely white, progressive, or Democratic Socialist activists uh, have an outsized role in shaping the messaging and policymaking of the Democratic Party. And those voters happen to be the antithesis of the voters we need to win swing elections in both the midterms and in 2024. And again, those voters are a critical part of our base and the party and, and should be respected and valued, but not to the exclusion of rank-and-file Democrats of color, who are on the ground, who are much more practical in their perspective. So that's the divide that worries me. And you brought up the term Latinx, it's perfectly illustrative. You know, I I represent a heavily Latino district. I've never heard a constituent invoke the term Latinx. The Pew Research Center found that even though more than 20% of Latinos are aware of the term, only 2% actually use it. Uh, and so if only 2% of a community uses the term Latinx, why has it become the standard, the dominant term that uh, for corporate America and for government? It seems to me that a community has the right to label itself rather than have a label imposed on it by others. Right. Yeah. Take as an example, I, I was speaking at a Pride event and one of the people introducing me began with a land acknowledgement, which I had never heard before, um, acknowledging, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. Sure. but it felt like empty virtue signaling. It's the kind of thing you do to make you feel good about yourself, but you're not actually sacrificing anything. It's not like you're giving reparations to Native Americans. You're not ceding your land to Native Americans. Mm-hmm. I find the, the virtue signaling that has become all too common in our politics and in our culture to be nauseating and
2: superficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I, I think you're speaking for a lot of people to your point. I think all this stuff is well-intentioned. I just think when you don't have a real program, Then symbolism. Rhetoric becomes more important than results. Outrage becomes more important than outcomes. Being able to look good in your Instagram and your your social media feed is a lot more important than actually doing good in your neighborhood and your family and stuff like that. And then that just becomes kind of a self-fulfilling cycle. I wonder on the program side, if we're losing black and brown working class voters to Republicans, because of this dynamic. Are you concerned? i mean, I look at some of the polling data that shows that the Latin community is like now 50, 50 Republican and that African-American men below the age of 35 are starting to move Republican. I don't know how Democrats win national elections splitting the Latino vote and then having African-Americans not be as reliable. Do you have any, any of those concerns uh, at this point? Coming in, as, as we're about to get a verdict at the midterm elections, are you worried?
3: There's reason to think that the greatest predictor of voting behavior increasingly is no longer race, it's class in the sense of educational attainment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we in the Democratic Party, we lost non-college educated blue collar whites a while ago, uh, especially with the rise of Donald Trump. Um, And we are increasingly losing communities of color who have been the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. And as you said, Latinos, Latinos, we lost races in South Texas, races in Florida. Now, obviously, granted, the Latino community is hardly a monolith. Yeah, right. The Puerto Ricans and Dominicans in New York are quite different from the Cubans in Florida, who are different from the Mexicans in Texas, who are different from the Mexicans and in, in California. So, the Latino community is is a highly variegated community in the United States, but. There's reason to think that communities of color are feeling increasingly alienated from the Democratic Party. And that's cause for alarm. That's a real crisis because we are the party of FDR. We should be the party that is a natural home for working people. Mm -hmm. I do not believe the Democratic Party should be the exclusive home of the college educated. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, we should be centered around working people and lifting up working people and creating opportunity and mobility and prosperity for working people.
2: That's the legacy of FDR. That's the legacy of LBJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, uh, RFK and a bunch of folks that I like as well. They don't do the initials anymore except for ALC. I don't know what that is. <laughs> but um, look, you, you know, you've made it when you have initials. Hey, <laughs> yeah, listen, it, that's true. I wonder, as you think about moving forward, with a kind of up with working class agenda. I think part of the way the Republicans try to cut into that is on the cultural issues. And rather than seeing people maybe move in a left FDR direction on economics, they try to pull people right on culture and they weaponize the transgender issue. They weaponize CRT, which is critical race theory. They weaponize these cultural issues. How do we respond to that without abandoning some of our commitment to equality dignity rights for everybody
3: president obama would speak of the core decency of the american people and uh, i think we have to appeal to the core decency of the american people and impress upon people the importance of protecting everyone including the trans community from discrimination in matters of employment and housing and public accommodations treating everyone fairly treating everyone equally under the law uh, I think those are powerful moral arguments that we can make on behalf of the LGBTQ community, on behalf of the trans community, without running into some of the traps that Republicans have laid for us. I'm conflicted because there's a sense in which our society is progressing and regressing at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's a, uh, uh, so I, on one hand, there's a sense of which I feel like we are worse off on race and gender today than we were more than a decade ago. Hmm. When President Obama first ran for president, people forget he won Indiana. <laughs> today, it's unimaginable that a Democrat could win Indiana. Like we even struggled to win Ohio in a presidential election. And so we are more disconnected from those non-college educated white voters than we've ever been. And our politics has become radically racialized because of the... Republican Party's crusade against CRT or against gender. We see all these laws, the bathroom bills, the sports bills, the don't say gay law in in Florida. Abortion. So there's a sense in which I feel like we are regressing. At the same time, you know, I had the honor of presiding over the vote for marriage equality in the House of Representatives. And I think most of us thought that it was going to be a message bill. And to our astonishment, 47 Republicans in the House voted for the bill to codify same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. And the leadership of the House Republican Conference, which is notoriously reactionary, did not whip against the bill. And it has a fighting chance of passing the Senate. while 50 Democrats are committed to voting for the Respect for Marriage Act. And there are five Republicans who have come out in favor of it and there are about 37 Republicans who have yet to take a position, all we need are five Republicans to break the filibuster and enshrine marriage equality in federal law. Yeah, right, right. There's these two competing realities of regressing and progressing at the same time.
2: Well, I think especially on that issue, there's um, the push-pull. I remember it was just 10 years ago, 2012, uh, Obama himself was reluctant to say that he was for marriage equality Even personally, in the 2012 election, it was Joe Biden that got out there in the front and said that they're for marriage equality for everybody. And then Obama was like, oh, Joe, you know, he had to go out there with Michelle Obama and hold her hand on a couch and work through, well, you know, my kids go to school with lesbian moms. And it was like just for us. And it wasn't a part of the agenda. Ten years later, to your point, if you're not for marriage equality, people aren't sure what planet you're from. And that's a lot of change in 10 years. I think the, on the other side of that though, on the transgender issues, a hundred percent if you're talking about somebody should be thrown out of their apartment or fired or whatever, or, or beaten up or harassed uh, for being transgender, I think where uh, the Republicans go is to say, but now you're teaching this stuff to my third grader and you didn't ask my permission. And you're saying that there's you know multiple genders And I never got a chance to vote on whether I wanted that as a part of the educational process. So then it becomes this parents' rights issue. And that does become very tricky. How do you think Democrats and the country as a whole should deal with, it's one thing to say, hey, don't fire this person because her gender is different than you thought it was. It's something else to say, we're gonna teach multiple genders to people in second grade. How do you deal with that?
3: I mean, the question is, is it actually happening? (laughs) Sometimes I observe these, debates about CRT and gender. And it's just so different from what I'm observing in my own backyard. I'm not aware of a single teacher educating students about CRT or gender theory in in elementary school or in middle school or in high school. Maybe it's happening elsewhere in the country, but I've seen no evidence of it in my own backyard. I think reasonable people of goodwill can have differing views, but keep in mind that There's bad faith behind these efforts. Like, this is not about parents' rights. These campaigns are typically coming from people who want trans people to be ostracized from society, right? Who want trans people to have no protection from discrimination in matters of employment, housing, and public accommodations, right? Like, the organizations that are behind these campaigns have radically anti trans views on issues that even the majority of people support. Uh, So I would just be careful not to ascribe good faith to people who are intent on marginalizing and ostracizing
2: the trans community in American life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I think the moral leadership that's going to be required to bring people together. And it's one thing to say, we're going to bring people up, which is more kind of a class agenda. It's something else to say we're going to bring people together, which is more of, can feel more like a, you know, let's all racial groups and gender groups like that. But to bring people together and up is I think the challenge. And I remember when Bernie Sanders first came on the scene as a major force, some of us were concerned that he wasn't smart enough on some of the racial stuff. It was like to him, it was like all class, you know, it was like all billionaires and all that sort of stuff. we're like, wait, hold on a second, it's not just that. And I think he adapted to it pretty well. I think he was able to kind of include in his class mobility agenda, a little bit more of the racial discussion. For us now going forward, man, you can overdo it.
3: Yeah, there's excess.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing about uh, Obama, is he had such a a light touch on some of these issues. I think it's more than that. I think my view is there are three basic stories of America. Mm -hmm. There's the story
3: of America as a white Christian nation, Mm -hmm. the story championed by Donald Trump, by MAGA, by Make America Great Again. There's the story of America as a more perfect union, that liberal story championed by Barack Obama, by President Obama. And, uh, and I think that's the traditional liberal narrative of America. Mm-hmm. And then there's a more leftist narrative of America as nothing but a system of oppression. I prefer the second narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the narrative that governs by politics. Mm-hmm. But the third narrative has become ascendant in the progressive movement mm-hmm. and on college campuses. So I don't see it as a light touch. I see it as a fundamental difference mm-hmm. in the perception of the country.
1: and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. You can power up your playtime with the Nintendo Switch system, the home of Mario and Friends. You may discover exciting surprises with Mario, Princess Peach, and more in Super Mario Brothers Wonder. Or challenge friends to a race in Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. You can head to Nintendo.com to learn more about the Nintendo Switch system. Games and systems sold separately.
2: I want to hit a couple more topics, you know, just because I want the Uncommon Ground community to luxuriate somewhat in your approach. I just think that you have a very grounded, composed approach to stuff, thoughtful and we don't get that a lot, frankly, in the media. Another hot button issue is, is the idea of crime and this uh, you know, challenge that we have where, on the one hand, we've been pushing for police reform. We've been pushing for criminal justice reform. I've certainly been a big part of that effort. And at the same time, we're now faced with crime and the perception of crime going up too many places and a sense that maybe there was excess, that we fired too many police officers who were being mean or we... Reform too many of the laws when it comes to bail reform or whatever, and that we actually caused a problem. And so sitting in the middle of all this stuff are African-American communities like you represent and care about and Latin communities that you represent and care about who are crushed <laughs> between unlawful street violence often and unlawful police violence and can't find a remedy in either direction. <laughs> and I just wonder how you think about that. Look, the majority of Americans, the majority of
3: rank and file Democrats, Are in favor of reforming rather than defunding the police. Mm -hmm. What most people want is neither over policing or under policing, but better policing, right? More accountable and more transparent and more constitutional policing. But we have to recognize that policing has a central role to play in public safety. I see no value in delegitimizing policing as a profession. We should seek to perfect it. We should seek to perfect institutions rather than abolish them. That tends to be my approach. A few months ago, I, I said publicly that the defund police movement is dead in New York City and good riddance. And anyone who advocates for the abolition or even the defunding of police is out of touch with reality and, and should not be taken seriously. And I said that as a representative of the South Bronx, which has seen a more than 200% rise in the number of shooting victims and shooting incidents. I had three officers who were shot in my neighborhood where I live, an 11th-month-old child who was shot in the face, a senior citizen who was gunned down in the middle of the night, all by stray bullets. These are innocent people who are moving around in their own neighborhoods who are suddenly struck by stray bullets, whose lives have been suddenly cut short. And so for me, it's not an abstraction. The plague of gun violence is ravaging communities of color. Now, having said all that, Republicans claim to be tough on crime, but if you're soft on guns, then you're soft on gun violence. You're soft on crime. The majority of guns recovered in New York City are coming from the South, are flowing through the Iron Pipeline to the Northeast. And there's only so much you can do at the state and local level when it comes to gun safety. You, know, you can have the strictest laws at the state and local level, but those laws can only take you so far when guns can easily cross state lines. There's no substitute for federal standards of gun safety. And in a rational world, every gun would be registered and safely stored. Every gun owner would be licensed and professionally trained. And every gun sale would be subject to a thorough and complete background check. But there's nothing remotely rational about a political system that enables one U.S. senator from a state smaller than New York City to filibuster gun safety at the expense of more than 330 million Americans. and. I think there's no issue on which our system has been more broken than on the subject of gun safety.
2: Yeah, you know, I wonder if you feel that some of the stuff that's going on in our communities is beyond federal law. In other words, I'm doing some work in Philadelphia where they have ghost guns and all kind of stuff where I don't yep. even know how you get to that. Ghost
3: guns have been historically exempt from firearm regulations. Mm. The Biden administration has a new rule that would expand the meaning of firearms to capture ghost guns. So that is
2: an issue that can be addressed by federal legislation. Well, that's good to hear. People who may not know a ghost gun is a gun, you get a kit and you assemble it yourself. And so you can avoid a whole bunch of stuff. And there's also stolen guns and all kinds of other stuff. And when I was coming up, young people were shooting each other over turf, drug money, gang affiliation, that type of stuff where there were some rational economic incentives because there was money involved. You know, the drug game now is a lot more pills and Percocets, that type of stuff. The margins aren't really there. And a lot of the violence isn't over turf. It's just over pride. Like somebody diss somebody on TikTok or something like that. And killing has almost become like clout in some places. I wonder, yeah, I think the federal government's got to do more, but you must also, having come from a community, from a good, strong family, also recognize that some of this stuff seems to be just a culture that's gotten way off the rails and mental health. I mean, how do you deal with it? I'm sure in your community, for instance, you had a bunch of police officers and and innocent people who were killed. You also had a bunch of young men who were probably killing each other. We don't wanna go back to draconian, putting people in jail forever for minor nonsense. Obviously, we want to do a better job of dealing with gun safety laws and legislation but something else seems to be off.
3: You know, I find that those on the left often emphasize structure to the exclusion of culture. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And those on the right often emphasize culture to the exclusion of structure. And the truth is that both matter. Both structure and culture matters. Where I might disagree with your question, Mm -hmm. or the analysis that underlies your question is, We cannot underestimate the impact of structure on culture, Mm -hmm. right? There's no doubt in my mind that the economic dislocations that began with Mm deindustrialization have had a corrosive impact on the culture of America across racial boundaries. The head of household has been displaced economically and is incapable of providing for himself and his family. That's going to affect the culture of the family. That's going to affect the culture of the community in which you live. Mm -hmm. So I just find it strange that our political discourse draws this hard and fast distinction between culture
2: and structure, when in truth, the two are closely intertwined. Yeah. This is all helpful stuff. I'll close out with just a couple of just quick hits. Just curious to know how you think about stuff. Midterms are coming up. You never know. I mean, I wouldn't have a job if anybody could guess really well. I see it in and, you know, we're sitting there watching John King at the you know map with everybody else waiting for the actual results to come in. So nobody knows. But, you know, as you think about the midterms coming up, what's your sense? What's your feeling? Do you think that Roe v. Wade is going to create a big wave of Democratic support? Do you think that the economy is so tough that no matter what, people are just not going to come out? Talk to me a little bit about how you assess and you, you're running for office yourself. Um, just how do you assess the mood of voters and what do you think may happen in November? Look, in
3: 2020, Congressional Democrats did worse than the pundits thought we would do. (laughs) A case could be made that the opposite is true in 2022, that we will do better than the pundits think we will do. Even though the economy is by far the central concern, inflation in particular, the priorities of the electorate have shifted toward issues like abortion and guns and democracy because of the Supreme Court decisions and because of the January 6th hearings. And those are winning issues for the Democratic Party and losing issues for the Republican Party. So even if you're a Democratic voter who's disillusioned with Joe Biden, who's disillusioned with the Democratic establishment, you are highly motivated to vote. You've seen the danger of right-wing judicial activism on the Supreme Court. You realize there's a risk of a national ban on abortion. Mm. So there's high motivation to vote. I believe that both the January 6th hearings and the right-wing judicial activism of the Supreme Court have had a real impact in narrowing the voter enthusiasm gap between the two parties. (laughs) And look, the conventional wisdom holds that history is destiny and the historical fact is that the party in power will lose the midterms. Well, if if history is destiny, then why is John Fetterman leading Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania? (laughs) Why is Raphael Warnock leading Herschel Walker in Georgia? Why is... Tim Ryan leading J.D. Vance in Ohio. So the performance of these Democratic candidates are defying the historical trend that pundits treat as almost a law of
2: nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Well, that's that's hopeful for my Democratic uh, listeners and maybe worrying for my Republican uh, listeners, you know.
3: But there's no question, and in honesty, that the path is going to be far more complicated in the House
2: sure. than it will be in the Senate. I mean, how hard is it post-January 6th to work with Republicans in that building? And have you found a way through? I mean, again, you were born negotiating uh, as a twin. Have you been able to find a way through or or even in a situation where maybe you had Republicans uh, running the House, do you see any hope?
3: Look, there are certainly Republicans with whom I have a working relationship. But if you are a Republican who aided and abetted the insurrection or who inspired the insurrection, then there's no hope for a working relationship. Um, or if you're a Republican who voted to decertify the election and reject a peaceful transfer of power, it's hard to have a working relationship. If you refuse to accept the principle of a peaceful transfer of power, then there's no common ground on which to build a relationship. Because, you know, we're not, you know, reasonable people of goodwill can disagree about the optimal rate of taxation in society. But what should never be up for debate is our country's centuries-long tradition of peacefully transferring power from one president to the next. That should be non-negotiable. That should be seen as sacred. That should be seen as beyond politics. And that sacred tradition was broken on January
2: 6th. Hmm. You talk about the transfer of power. People are looking at 2024 and biting their nails because of Biden's uh, poll numbers and all that stuff. How do you assess whether or not Democrats should be looking elsewhere whether or not Biden should be looking elsewhere. Right now, he's a little bit on a run. He's being able to get some good stuff going. Maybe that's an opportunity for him to say, I'm leaving on a high note. Maybe he says, I should stay here and do more. How would you advise Biden if he asks you what to do?
3: The first question you have to ask yourself is, is Biden doing a good job?
2: And if the answer is yes,
3: then you should support him for re-election. And my view is that Joe Biden has had the most productive presidency in recent memory. He has presided over... The passage of landmark pieces of legislation from the American Rescue Plan to the bipartisan infrastructure bill to the bipartisan gun safety bill to the bipartisan science and semiconductor bill. These are staggering achievements. Like the level of bipartisan achievement in the Biden administration would have been unthinkable in the aftermath of January 6th. It would have been unthinkable in a period of peak partisanship and polarization. Uh, And so if you believe, as I do, that he has been successful as president, despite the media narrative, then it logically follows that we ought to support him for re-election. And it strikes me as unwise for my fellow Democrats to undermine the leader of our own party and to play into the Fox News right-wing caricature of Joe Biden. That feels like self-sabotage to me,
2: well, look, man, the first time I talked to you, like I said, wasn't that long ago. You had just won, I think, the Democratic nomination. You were not yet the congressperson, you had been sworn in. You were incredibly impressive then and thoughtful, and you've only grown in the couple of years since then, and we expect you to grow even more. I think for me, I have a lot of hope. You sound wiser than the old folks. <laughs> That's the crazy thing is that there are people who are literally twice your age in public office, frankly on both sides of the aisle, that seem to be majoring in the minors, getting very, very good at being petty and attention-grabbing and destructive, and it seems to be getting worse. And so to talk to somebody like you, who's literally less than half the age of the leadership of the country, who seems to be as sober as you are and as thoughtful as you are, I think gives a lot of hope. And I hope as the years go on with this podcast and other things I do, I get a chance to keep talking to you. I learned a lot. And believe it or not, folks, the voice you just heard, this guy is right now, as he sits here, too young to be president. He's only 34. He'll be 35 to be president. He will be eligible in 2024. But right now, you just heard the voice of somebody who is still too young to be president and sounded wiser than a lot of people in elective office here and around the world. It's been an honor to have you on, sir. Look forward to continuing the conversation. Take care. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so
0: beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp, to welcome them to the Golden Door.
2: Well, if you've never heard of Richie Torres or never heard him before, mark this date down (laughs) in your calendar. I don't think I've seen anybody in his generation with more uh, talent or or conviction or or insight. And he's going to be around a long time, you know, God willing. And I think he's important. I think what AOC represents in the Democratic Party in his generation is important her passion, her conviction, but she sees the world very differently and the socialist left in the Democratic Party sees the world very differently than Richie Torres does. And I think it's so important to have his point of view as well represented as it is by him. I do think that there are a lot of working class, non-college voters who just really don't see Democratic Party that understands what they're going through on a daily basis. And I think it's clear that Richie Torres does, um, not just because of his background, but just because of the pragmatism that he approaches these issues with. The thing about it is, as uh, Brittany Barnett said in an earlier podcast, she said, I don't have the privilege to be partisan. You know, sometimes we can get so high up in the clouds with all of our you know race and gender theory and all this other sort of stuff and don't recognize the privilege that's associated with that when people can't drive to work because gas prices are too high and they can't find formula for their babies, that there's just a completely different reality that politics needs to be responding to, that it's not either or, but often it feels that way. And you need people like Richie Torres who can, while still holding on to the agenda of dignity for everybody and believing that everybody counts and everybody matters, everybody should have a place, doesn't lose track of the main as he calls them bread and butter issues, they really impact you know, tens of millions of people every day who don't see a champion. And I think also people need champions that can speak for them and to others <laughs> because none of us can solve these problems on our own. And I think that Richie Torres is somebody who is speaking for his constituency that has a ton of problems, but he's able to speak to others and build bridges and uh, I am very, very glad and proud that he was on this podcast. I also wonder what's going to happen when both Richie Torres and ALC both want the same Senate seat. <laughs> You're going to have two of the most promising young political leaders of our time possibly on a collision course. Here in California, Kamala Harris and Gavin Newsom were able to avoid each other the whole time because one wanted to be governor and she wanted to go to the Senate. But I don't get the impression either one of those want to be governor. So I think, again, if you've never heard of Richie Torres, never heard his voice before, mark this down. It won't be the last time you hear from him. At some point, the two best spokespersons of their generation representing two very different views are probably going to have a chance to debate this out on stage. I hope I'm around to see it. This is Van Jones, Uncommon Ground. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credewal. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe. Andy Lichtenfell, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Swinteman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarron, Joe McMillan, Steph Walking, Vanessa Reppert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.